Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, a Ukrainian musician reflects on what music means during wartime. It was a great surprise. The change is huge and really dramatic and uh, everything has changed. And there's a growing number of a certain kind of blood-sucking arachnid and diseases that come with it. We've seen an increase in tick presence in general in this state and believe that more tick-borne diseases are coming this way. We also sit in on one of the natural wonders of the Great Smoky Mountains. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. They're flickering. It's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. It's hauntingly beautiful. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The Appalachian dulcimer, sometimes called a lap or mountain dulcimer, is one of the most popular instruments in string band music. It's lightweight, easily portable, and a little longer than a full-size fiddle. Then there's the hammer dulcimer, a larger, less portable instrument that's a little more rare. Some of them can take up the top of a small table or a desk. They're often played with little mallets, or sometimes sticks and rods. While the two instruments share a name, they're not related. The Appalachian dulcimer appeared among Scots-Irish immigrants living in the region in the 19th century. The hammer dulcimer is much older and part of a huge musical family that has members in Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. It's a relative of a Ukrainian instrument called the cymbali. Last summer, Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett brought us this story, which took her from Fairmont, West Virginia, all the way to Lviv, Ukraine. I'm in a farmhouse in Marion County, West Virginia, in a living room where a woman sits behind a wooden board that's laced with exposed strings. The afternoon sunlight illuminates her hands as they move across the dulcimer, gently drumming the strings with wooden hammers that resemble little skis. And some 5,000 miles away from a townhouse on the outskirts of Lviv, Ukraine, there's a similar sound coming from a similar instrument, an echo of Ukraine's Carpathian Mountains resounding into the mid-afternoon air. It's the sound of a cymbali. With just a quick glance at these two instruments, there's no doubt they're related. But how? With thousands of miles of ocean and landmass in between, where's the link? To begin my investigation, I talked with Lynette Swiger from Fairmont, West Virginia. Lynette is a retired school teacher and adjunct professor at Fairmont State University's Folklife Center. She was introduced to the hammer dulcimer when she was a teenager. My mother was the local 4-H leader, and there was a man from Mannington called Russell Fluharty. Also known as the dulcimer man. North Central West Virginia had a fairly strong hammered dulcimer tradition, but it was dying out. When Russell took up the hammered dulcimer, he revived that hammered dulcimer tradition and really single-handedly kept it from dying. When Russell played for Lynette's 4-H group, it was the first time Lynette had ever heard the hammered dulcimer. And when he left, I wanted to play that instrument. So she went on the hunt to buy a hammered dulcimer of her own. Uh, They cost $125, which at the time, for me, as a a young kid, was a lot of money. I got down to pennies to to make $125. She had her eye on a dulcimer made by a local woodworker. And I remember I poured it all into a brown paper lunch bag and tied it at the top with a piece of string and took it to Ralph Campbell's house and put it, plunked it, plunked down on his coffee table He didn't even count it. He just said, great, thank you. And that was the start of a lifelong pursuit. 
learning the hammer dulcimer, and celebrating Appalachian folk music. The shelves on our home are crowded with cassette tapes, organized into an archive of sorts. This box are ballad singers. Okay. It, uh, it's a sickness. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> Lynette plays hammer dulcimer in the traditional West Virginia style. And although the approach is unique to the region, I learned that many versions of the instrument are played across the world. Lynette told me our hammer dulcimer is a descendant of the hochbrett, an old German instrument. A hochbrett means chopping block, so you would chop with your little hammers. As people migrated, the hochbrett did too. It made its way west through Great Britain, Ireland, and eventually to Appalachia, where it became known as the hammer dulcimer. It also migrated to the east, taking root along the way, including in the mountains of Ukraine. There it was known as the Symboli. So ours had remained a more simple instrument, and theirs had become a more elaborate instrument. And when European immigrants came to work in the Appalachian coal fields, they each brought their own version of the hawkbrett. The two instruments existed side by side right here in Marion County, West Virginia, and really never met, really never crossed over for a variety of reasons. As a folk musician and teacher of folklore, Lynette wanted to figure out why. They're, they're different, and they're played differently, and the, the number of strings are different, but they still look very similar, and they're both played with hammers. She found that the isolation of the mountains and the ethnic separation in coal camps also impeded cross-pollination between the two. In 2013, Lynette presented her research about the differences and similarities between the Symboli and Hammer dulcimer at a conference in western Ukraine. So, of course, she packed her dulcimer. Okay, so I'm going down the Pittsburgh airport wheeling this, this trapezoidal wooden box that's half as big as me, and people are giving me the oddest looks. And then I'm telling the airport workers, please be careful with it, you know, and I have fragile written all over it, and they're saying, what is it? So then I go to Ukraine, and I get it off the, the luggage rack, and, and one of the handlers hands it to me and says, Simbali! And I said, yes, yes, and I'm wheeling it down the airport, and people are saying, Simbali, Simbali! You play Simbali! And I said, yes! I mean, everywhere I went, they knew exactly what it was. Lynette says she felt right at home in the mountains of Ukraine. When we walked into the mountains, and the people were just common mountain people, just like they are here. Hello, as you walk past, and how are you? And their laundry was hanging on the lines. I mean, it was just like being at home. At the opening session of the conference, Lynette and her hammer dulcimer had center stage. And it was very hushed and quiet. I, I sat down at that instrument, and they really wanted to hear Appalachian music played on their national instrument. Her performance was so well-received, it even played on national television. Lynette is one of the hammer dulcimer players sustaining the tradition in Appalachia. But the presence of Simbali in the region has largely faded away. And since I couldn't find a symbolist here in Appalachia, I decided to look to the source. And after some intense internet sleuthing, I found my guy. And, do, you have, do you have your Symboli with you? Uh, yes, it's, it's here. You see it? That's Sevlad Sadovich. I am a musician, uh, the multi-instrumentalist um, from Lviv, Ukraine. I was ed uh, educated as the percussionist as a classical musician. I met Sevalod over Zoom, in typical millennial fashion. He wore a hoodie and hipster glasses. A drum set filled the screen behind him. Speakers lined the shelves, and I spotted a keyboard peeking into the frame. The home of a musician. And there it was. The large wooden instrument. The Ukrainian cousin of Lynette's hammer dulcimer. It's decorated uh, in the mountain style with a lot of uh, color uh, glass. It's a lot of uh, wooden uh, elements. 
with um, steel strings. Sevalod lives near the Carpathian Mountains of western Ukraine, a terrain which has greatly influenced the traditional music of the region. The scale and the tempo is precisely matched to the landscape. And you are always going down and going up and going down and going up. It's 90% instrumental music. Uh, Really fast and uh, highly decorated melodies. Um, Fast tempos and rich in uh, ornaments. He says nowadays not many people play Simbali. It's heavy and hard to tune. There is a joke. It says that um, the cymbalist, cymbalist is the man who playing the cymbali, uh, half of his life he's, play, he's tuning his cymbali and the other part of his life he's playing on uh, untuned cymbali. Savalad is teaching himself drawing inspiration from traditional music and blending it with his classical training and contemporary interests. Uh, I think one life is not enough for, for going through all traditions of Zimbabwe just in our mountains. Sevalod is a full-time musician and music teacher. He plays in a band called Lemco Bluegrass Band. They play in a style that's a mix of Ukrainian music and bluegrass music. There's a growing trend of young people like Sevalod who are interested in preserving traditional music and Ukrainian culture, an act which he feels is significant, especially amidst the current circumstances. In the past several months, he and his fellow musicians in Lviv have been playing gigs to raise money in support of Ukrainian troops. The city where Sevalot lives has been mostly spared from the violence in eastern parts of the country. The traditional arts, the folk music, the dances, uh, decoration, it all matters. Uh, We have uh, treasures we see around us, we want to collect them. I want to listen to it, I want to share it with my friends, you know. Sevalad sent me a video of him playing Simbali, accompanying a group of three female singers. They're dressed in traditional clothing, floor-length skirts and brightly colored flowers pinned to their hair. Sevalod's passion for the Symboli and folk music of Ukraine felt so similar to Lynette's commitment to the Hammer Dulcimer and folk music of Appalachia. And I found it puzzling that both instruments originated from a common source, centuries later nearly collided right here in West Virginia, but then promptly went their separate ways, like magnets of the same pole that repel each other when they get too close. So I decided to interfere. I'll just get, shoot him a text and say we're on. Oh, there, there he is. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. Lynette was in her farmhouse in Fairmont. So I am in the country. Clara has been here. So I live in the mountains on a farm. If you go to your mountains, the Carpathian Mountains, if you go there mm-hmm. and look around, that's what it looks like here. Sevalod was in his home on the outskirts of Lviv. Well, uh, I'm now in my place, in my home. It is a small house, tiny house. I'm talking to someone in Ukraine, and we see each other. It's amazing. From there, the conversation took off, talking about tuning and melodies and musical terms that went right over my head. Uh, for example, I have I here, I, and I made octave. Sevalod was playing with his cell phone in one hand and Symbali hammer in the other. There's a jump on a third A, C sharp. We had just a 40 minute limit on Zoom, so I had to play timekeeper. So we have have six minutes left. 
No way! Really? The next 40-minute call also maxed out. And as we talked, they exchanged knowing smiles, united as insiders, with this instrument that has transcended time and place. Beauties on the melody. Right. Uh, Yes, do you understand me? Absolutely. That's what we do here. Exactly. From what I learned, the Simbali and the Hammer Dulcimer are both very place-specific, and the music that's played is hyper-local. In Ukraine, we have uh, really deep roots. This traditional Appalachian music, it's our roots. And we still have evidence in the village. The grannies are singing like uh, 9th or 10th century style. Uh, it's, it's really treasure. The titles of many of those songs um, indicate places or people or important events. So when we play those tunes, we're playing our history. We may not know it, but we are playing our history. And we are playing who we are as people. And that, I found, is what links the hammer dulcimer and the cymbali. In Western Ukraine and in Appalachia, these instruments are vessels holding a history and culture that is so specific, yet altogether universal. Well, uh, maybe we will meet once more and you will show me your dulcimer. How I will do that. I will have my dulcimer ready to show the next time. Uh, I love this. Thank you, thank, you. thank you both so much. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Clara's story about the hammer dulcimer aired last July, when Russia's war in Ukraine had been underway for a few months. We check back in with Sevalod Sadovich. That's coming up next. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Before the break, we heard a story about the Appalachian hammer dulcimer and its Ukrainian relative, the Simbali. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett originally reported that story in May of 2022, just a few months after Russia invaded Ukraine. As the war is ground on, we've wondered what happened with Sevalad Zadovich. Clara recently caught up with the Simbali player over Zoom and brings us this update. When I last spoke to Sevalad, he was in Lviv, Ukraine. It's been one year since that first call. And a lot has changed. For one, his beard is much longer. And two, you are in Ireland now. It was a great surprise. The change is huge and really dramatic and uh, everything has changed. Sevala lives in Ireland now, in Galway, a colorful coastal city known for folk music. Galway is a really good uh, place to play on the streets, and I saw a lot of guys with guitars are singing songs. Sevalad and his family are among the millions of Ukrainians who have left their homes since the start of the war. It's caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II, displacing people within Ukraine, across Europe, and around the world. Just days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Sevalad's wife and children crossed the border into Poland, eventually making their way to Ireland. Sevalad helped them with the move, but then returned to Lviv, alone. We had uh, still some concert and touring and uh, recordings to do. He was separated from his family for almost a year. All the year, we were speaking in uh, the messengers and video calls and... Um, Mostly, I've been uh, living alone. 
During that time, his work as a professional musician and music teacher was actually thriving. With the onset of the war, COVID took a backseat. People began gathering again, organizing benefit concerts to support troops on the front lines, some of whom were musicians prior to joining the armed forces. So we gathered a lot of um, funds to support them in uh, the special needs, which are not um, covered by the uh, government. Things like night vision scopes and drones. The concert were uh, even more um, soulful because uh, it's not about only the music, but the point was to support uh, our friends and our relatives for the victory. It was a critical moment to be part of the community. But at the same time, he was separated from his family. So I was on some kind of crossroad. Should I stay or should I go? From the other hand, I uh, missed all the year of uh, my um, little son growing up, which is like something which will never turn back. So he decided to go leaving behind students and bandmates and a thriving career. He joined his wife and two kids in Galway. Sevalad says he's always felt a strong connection to Irish folk music. It was actually one of the reasons he and his wife decided on Ireland instead of another European country. In Ukraine, we were like really fond of uh, Western European folklore and uh, especially Northern folklore. Um, and uh, Irish was the special uh, one from that favorite list. Since moving here, Savalot has started playing the mandolin. And he brought his own instruments from Ukraine, too. He's been busking on the streets, playing cymbali and sharing Ukrainian folk music with passers-by. I've decided also to, to share something, because I have this instrument which would be interesting for people to see. There is an Irish version of the hammer dulcimer, but it's not common in traditional music. Uh, It was something really uh, unusual and a lot of people were just staying for a while, just to see, just to hear. When we talked last, you talked about how important folk music is to Ukrainian identity and culture. What does it feel like to kind of be away from Ukraine and still being able to play this music? You know, it's something natural for me because uh, we did a lot of uh, touring with our music, uh, with different projects, different bands. uh, But the difference probably is that um, I changed uh, the point of where the home is. Now home is Ireland. He's met several people while playing Symbali on the streets in Galway, including a couple from Appalachia and a woman from Iran. I met the woman uh, from Iran, and she said that uh, it reminds of her motherland. They have uh, a very similar instrument in Iran also, Santur. Well before the hammer dulcimer arrived in Appalachia, or the Symbali found its way to Ukraine, it was called the Santur. It's thought to have originated in Persia, or what is now Iran, where it then made its way around the world. Santur means uh, the sound of the sea waves. I didn't know that, and it was really interesting for me. Sevalod is now part of this process, of people coming and going, leaving behind and starting anew, with instruments in tow and music stored within. A lot of uh, things uh, changed in my life since the move, (laughs) but uh, it's good. I accept it and it's interesting period when I can really um, pay attention to uh, what is the inner music uh, of me, what's inside. After our call ended, Sevalod left the recorder going as he played this song. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hayslip. That story comes to us from our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos of Sevalod Sadovich and his family, 
visit our website, wvpublic.org. For a lot of reasons, it's getting harder and harder to access healthcare here in Appalachia. Hospitals have closed. Seeing a specialist can take months on a wait list and require driving multiple hours. It's challenging to see a mental health professional or find a place to give birth as facilities have shut down, consolidated, or scaled back. But the region is also seeing a shortage of healthcare workers. WVPB's Caroline McGregor reports about what's happening in West Virginia hospitals. While there has been progress over the past year, hospitals in West Virginia still face a broad-ranging shortage of healthcare workers. Healthcare providers struggle with a backlog of care for patients, problems with supply chains, mounting financial pressures, and legislative changes to insurance. Jim Kaufman, president and CEO of the West Virginia Hospital Association, says staffing challenges are evident at nearly all of the state's hospitals. We're only operating about two-thirds of the beds that we're licensed for in West Virginia because of staffing issues. And it's not just nursing. It's respiratory therapists. It's you know occupational therapists. It's really every profession across the board. And it's also non-clinical professions that are impacting hospitals' operations. The West Virginia Hospital Association is working with the state's healthcare providers to address these staff shortages. One idea includes an apprenticeship program and promoting nursing career ladders, where nurses advance in steps through professional development. We're trying to work creatively, so as the state is producing more nurses or more healthcare professionals, we can try to find a way to retain them here. An initiative announced last June by Governor Jim Justice to train more nursing and EMS professionals has helped. But while the number of nursing slots in the state has almost doubled, Kaufman says the benefits won't be seen for a year or two. Some of the programs are doing it in 18 months now, but still it takes you know, a year and a half to two years to get some of those students through their program. Once we're producing them, that's one thing, but keeping them here because of our payer mix, we face a challenge in being able to offer competitive salaries. Payer mix monitors how healthcare facilities like hospitals are compensated for patient care. Federal health insurers compensate at a lower rate than private medical insurance. A hospital in another state that has a better payer mix, they're going to have more commercial patients, which means they're going to have more resources to offer higher salaries, better facilities, etc. In its 2022 report on the state of the country's hospitals, the American Hospital Association reported an overall increase in labor costs, drugs, supplies and equipment. In West Virginia, Kaufman says operating expenses for some hospitals have risen by more than 20% since the onset of the pandemic. The average hospital in West Virginia right now is facing about a negative 7% operating margin. Just costs have skyrocketed. I mean, everybody talks about the, you know, the cost of energy for themselves or food and labor, and we're seeing all of those exact things. In 2023, shortages still persist. Supply chain issues exist for things like intravenous contrast media products for CT imaging to infant formula. The consolidation of manufacturing capabilities in a handful of places, if they go offline, like infant formula is a great example, I mean, it was coming out of one plant. Well, if one place shuts down for any reason, it has a huge rippling effect. Tim Martin is the Chief Operating Officer for Cabell Huntington Hospital, a 303-bed teaching hospital for Marshall University Schools of Medicine. Coming out of the pandemic, to try and hold on to the staff that you have, there's been significant increases in staff pay and benefits pay. So you add all of that together, and that's the reason that a lot of your hospitals are seeing these negative margins, because the numbers simply they just don't add up. Despite this financial dilemma, the hospital works with local schools to attract students across the healing arts and offers tuition reimbursement and forgiveness programs in addition to daycare assistance. The hospital redistributes resources where it can to help cover patient care. We have a significant amount of our staff that maybe doesn't work full-time hours. We also have some highly skilled caregivers outside of direct patient care. We're trying to encourage all hands or all available personnel to pick up additional shifts. Martin says hours are closely monitored and an employee assistance program helps staff who feel overwhelmed. 
We also have put in stations around our hospital, what I call fatigue mitigation stations, where our caregivers can go and detach from the everyday work grind, uh, kind of relax a little bit. So we're trying to do everything that we can to ensure that they don't reach that breaking point. About 75% or three out of four of the state's patients are insured through government programs like Medicare and Medicaid or the Public Employees Insurance Agency for state employees. The national average is 45%, programs that traditionally pay providers less than the cost of care. That's making it increasingly challenging for us to balance budgets and, and to have that positive margin that we need to reinvest back into our infrastructure and new technologies to expand where we need to. In January, Wheeling Hospital announced it would no longer accept patients with West Virginia Public Employees Insurance. Kaufman said the hospital had struggled with multi-million dollar losses for years. Before the legislature stepped in this year, the insurer paid health care providers like WVU Wheeling 50% of the Medicare rate, but four to five times more to out-of-state hospitals for the same service. Now that's actually flipped. Since the governor signed legislation raising PEI reimbursements to 110% of Medicare, July 1, Wheeling has announced that they will now go back and network with PEIA. In early 2020, Thomas Memorial Hospital filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which it emerged from the same year after entering into a partnership with WVU Medicine to expand services and ultimately stabilize its financial challenges. Kaufman says with people depending on hospitals 24 hours a day, limited resources will continue to threaten patient access to care and prove unsustainable in the long term. The state also faces other obstacles. We have you know, some of the worst statistics, and that's you know, one of our challenges. I mean, we have an older population, a sicker population, and then when you add in the social economics, we have a poor population. Martin agrees with Kaufman that people who delayed care during the pandemic are now presenting with more acute symptoms, including cancer. We know for the two years of the pandemic, cancer rates did not go down. However, we saw a decrease in patients presenting with cancer because they were delaying that care. doesn't mean it's not out there, it just means we weren't finding it. Delayed treatment equals costlier care, and when combined with a deficit of staff, Martin says it could put a serious strain on a delicate system of care as it exists right now. I'm not saying it, it can't happen, but I could foresee on the horizon another health emergency across our country is patients that are presenting are already going to be in an advanced state That means they're going to need, at that particular point in time, a higher level of care, and it could very easily overburden the healthcare system. Even if we close those beds and try and right-size our budget, our patients are still showing up at our doors seeking care. That doesn't go away. We're put into this situation of morally and ethically what's the right thing to do, and then you have this looming possibility of what might be out there on the horizon that we've got to start thinking about and preparing our health systems for. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston. The COVID-19 pandemic brought long-simmering issues among workers to a boil, particularly people in the medical and service industries. In a recent study, West Virginia University researchers looked at the same conditions with community faith leaders. Angel Smothers is an associate dean at the West Virginia University School of Nursing. Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice sat down with Smothers to talk about the study's findings. Are these numbers based on a pandemic-era study or something more recent? During the stay-at-home order of 2020, uh, we wanted to really take the opportunity to look at how faith leaders were approaching Um, you know, working with their congregants and the people within their faith communities. And so we completed this study knowing that this was the only time, hopefully, we'll ever be able to do a study like this. Have conditions improved or declined since then? So, you know, we recognize from the study that we need uh, further research to look at now that things have settled down, where are we? Did the study come from that place of we're never going to have this opportunity again? I was wondering how the study got started. We really were seeking to find out what were faith leaders, what techniques were they using to still engage with uh, their community members? Uh, because there were pastors here in West Virginia, we're the third most rural state in the nation. And, you know, we have a lot of very rural areas where there's limited internet 
And so we wanted to find out what were some differences between pastors, let's say, in the southern coal fields of West Virginia, where there's limited Internet, versus the more um, urban settings, such as in Mon County, Morgantown area. Why is this study important to you? Why is it important to pay attention to people experiencing burnout? Why is that important? What we wanted to look at was those faith community nurses and you know, pastoral leadership, whether it's pastors or priests or uh, clergy in faith communities, what they were doing to continue to engage with the communities that they serve. And we, you know, the burnout piece of that is especially during a crisis moment, we wanted to see how did they overcome those barriers in accessing and supporting their, their community members. What is compassion fatigue in your own words? So compassion fatigue is when someone is in the role of caregiver and whether that be a pastor, a nurse, um, someone, a lay person that is just a supportive person for someone else. When you're in the caregiver role, it's it's really easy to get burned out. And so caregiver compassion or compassion fatigue uh, really relates to someone having burnout who is in a caregiver role. And why is it important for people in that caregiver roles um, to feel compassion satisfaction? And what does compassion satisfaction mean to you? So compassion satisfaction really is for someone who is in that caregiver role to feel that the work and the the sacrifices that they're making to provide care uh, are meaningful. What are some of the self-care strategies you recommend for those experiencing burnouts? And so we recommend that people self-examine their own limitations and don't exceed those. And and remember their own spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional needs and seek out ways to address those within themselves, even while still acting as a caregiver. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Gardening is one of summer's great joys, and it's not just for grown-ups. A new children's book by a Pittsburgh author teaches how to grow tomato and community. The Allegheny Front's Carol Holsapel has more. My name is Ebony Evans, and I am an urban farmer and a community educator. In 2017, Evans started farming in her backyard with her children. Now she has two plots, one in Pittsburgh's north side and another in the west end. She teaches others to grow through her nonprofit, Out of the End. That's how she connected with toddlers at a peace of mind learning center where the book took root. I spoke with Evans at her west end corner store, Farmer Girl Ebb, which emphasizes fresh food. What inspired you to write this book, Tomato, Tomato, How Do You Grow? So it's actually called Tomato, Tomato, How Do You Grow? And um, I work with a group of youth, and I've been working with them for some years now. They just became the perfect audience to begin to create routines around growing. And the book just kind of came organically with how uh, we interacted in the garden, we just started saying little chants around the tomatoes and like words in a book like water, water, water. That just became the focus. Did the stories come first and then the illustrations? Yes. The story came first and the illustrator actually was one of the um, college students that was working at the child care center, Kayla Suspatis. She turned out to be the perfect person. This was her first project. It was amazing. The kids were able to actually grow food, sell the food at the Wilkinsburg Farmer's Market and use the money to pay Kayla to illustrate the book. So, yeah. That's cute. The book is really bright. It's colorful. Can you say a little bit about like what happens in the book? So the book is about a youth understanding what it takes to grow a tomato. There are rhyming words, and it helps you to remember the elements that it takes to grow a tomato. The sun, the rain, the wind, the soil. 
gives you all your power. So in the back of the illustrated book, there are photos of the kids that you went through this process with learning to grow tomatoes. There are so many smiles. What's been the feedback? So I think just with the kids alone, like every time they see me, they're like, I got a book, my book. The kids are so excited. You know, they feel like it's theirs and it is. You know, they have a sense of belonging. You know, they feel like authors. They love it. I've even had interactions with other youth that, they didn't help write the book, but they find themselves in it. And they're like, wait, that's me. I think, is this me? Is this me? And it's, and so that's exciting. How does this book fit into the rest of your work? As an urban farmer, I, I'm excited to be able to live a purpose, live my dream. But I've always known that I was born to be an educator. And so for a long time, I thought it was like a public school educator. And whenever that didn't work out for me anymore. It was kind of sad, and I didn't know because all of my education is in education. But once the urban farming world opened up to me, not only was I able to self-educate, it also gave me an opportunity to educate my community, especially the black and brown community, on how to grow and sustain food. And um, even with just opening up this business, this all just came kind of like organic. You know, I had... I didn't set out for this. It's just kind of coming, and I'm just taking it as it comes. Ebony Lunsford Evans is the author of the children's book, Tomato, Tomato, How Do You Grow? The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. With the exception of a cold snap on Christmas Eve, Appalachia had a mild winter. And now we're paying the price with a surge of ticks. I know I've noticed a lot more ticks here in Western Virginia this year. And Appalachian social media is home to a steady stream of complaints about ticks, Lyme disease, and alpha-gal syndrome. Producer Bill Lynch reached out to regional epidemiologist Daniel Barker-Gum and Stephen Eschenauer, the health officer for the Kanawha County Health Department, to learn more. So we're talking about ticks. The reason I'm interested in ticks is that the first time I cut my grass, I pulled three off me. And it got me thinking about ticks and worrying about ticks. Someone talked to me about ticks. There are a few reasons you may be seeing more ticks, and part of that is global warming, the fact that we've been going into more natural areas, um, human population is expanding, so we're going to encounter more wildlife. Also, we've seen an increase in tick presence in general in this state and believe that more tick-borne diseases are coming this way, and every year we see higher numbers of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illness. What kind of wildlife is carrying ticks to, toward the human population? The big one that we're concerned about is deer um, because of the black-legged tick or deer tick as it's commonly called, carries Lyme disease. Many other mammals can be vectors as well, even some reptiles. You, you mentioned other diseases besides Lyme disease, or those may be coming in. Well, what else should we worry about? Well, we've also got other diseases such as ehrlichiosis, babesiosis, tularemia, and those are much more rare than Lyme is, but we do expect to see more increases in them. Uh, every year we get a few more of those. If someone gets a tick or three, how concerned should you be about Lyme disease or picking up something else? The good news is that they found that if you can remove a tick within 24 hours, your chance of getting infectious disease from them is very, very small. So if you can detect a tick on you before it feeds off you, before it takes a blood meal, and you'll know that too because they become engorged and they look much different than a tick that hasn't. That's when you maybe want to get concerned if it's taking a blood meal, you don't know how long it's been on you, and especially if you develop a rash in the region where it fed on you, then that may be time to go see a doctor. Lyme disease, how would you even know you had it? So Lyme disease can be detected in a couple of different ways. One is the symptomatology of it. You had a tick, you then developed a rash, uh, and sometimes it looks like a bullseye. So you can have uh, the rash and then the other symptoms that can come with it it could be body aches, it could be joint aches, 
kind of like a flu-like syndrome that you just don't feel well. But combine that with the history of a tick bite, and especially if you do have the rash, which not everybody develops the rash, but many do, then as a physician, usually I'm going to go ahead and start them empirically and then do a blood test. And the Lyme disease can be detected through a blood test definitively. One other point on if you do have a tick on you and it and you're able to get it off within about 48 hours, your physician can also prescribe you a prophylactic dose of doxycycline that just a single dose typically prevents Lyme disease from becoming a true infectious disease of the body. Any advice on checking for ticks? Is there, is there a method to it? Is there a, a proper way to do it? I always tell people to look for crevices in your body. Ticks are sometimes really picky about where they want to feed at. So like under your armpits, in your belly button, sometimes in your groin. They like to find a, a safe, secure spot where they can feed uninterrupted. Also in your scalp, which is another reason I tell people to shower if you just went camping or you're out in the woods for a while. We have um, three major tick species that cause disease in West Virginia, and that's the deer tick or black-legged tick. We have the eastern dog tick and the lone star tick. The deer tick can cause Lyme disease and ehrlichiosis. The lone star tick can also cause ehrlichiosis, and it can also cause a red meat allergy called alpha-gal syndrome. And the dog tick can cause Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I've been hearing more about the alpha-gal syndrome. Can someone talk about that? Alpha-gal syndrome usually occurs after someone has had the disease ehrlichiosis, which is commonly transmitted by the lone star tick. Basically, it's an antibody to the antigen of ehrlichiosis that crosses over to red meats and uh, milk and cheese. So unfortunately, those patients usually end up having a red meat allergy that many times persists for life. Is there anything you can do for your property to, I guess, reduce ticks? So if you cut your grass fairly often and keep it short, usually that keeps the ticks down at least a little bit. Another thing that we do, we live out in the country on the farm, is in the yard area is we spray some malathion on one evening, typically a couple times in the early in the year, and that really has helped keep, uh, it's a insecticide, but you spray it on at night and then or right as it gets dark, and it's broken down by UV light, so it doesn't hang around long. The next day, the UV light coming from the sky, whether it's cloudy or not, will break down the malathion, so it has a very safe profile for pets. You keep them out of the yard during that time, and then by the next evening, you can't even tell it's there, it's gone. Our final story is about bugs, too, but of a kind that inspires very different emotions than ticks. Jackie Sieber from WUOT takes us deep into the Smoky Mountains to watch lightning bugs, also called fireflies. Every summer at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, thousands of people apply to a lottery to witness one firefly species mating display. The Phytinus carolinus, better known as synchronous fireflies, is one of the only firefly species in North America that synchronizes its flash patterns. The patterns resemble dancing Christmas lights, illuminating the forest floor in a pale blue color for a few seconds, then pausing all at once for a breath, only then to pick it back up moments later. And the flashing behavior is is basically a reproductive display. It's a form of communication uh, between the males and females. Males are the ones that are more obvious. That's Becky Nichols, an entomologist at the park. She explains that the fireflies mate every year around late May to mid-June, when the temperature is just right. Researchers can guess that time by collecting temperature data. While the males try to compete with one another, the females are usually on the ground. They produce a dim double flash to communicate. The firefly species is unique to Appalachia and stretches as far as the Alleghenies in Pennsylvania. This year, public affairs specialist Emily Davis says that over 42,000 people entered a lottery to see this display in the Smokies, specifically in an area called Elkmont. This just happens to be one of the best places where some of the uh, needs of the firefly are best met. Um, great temperature, great elevation, great soil, there's water nearby. And this particular area, the Elkmont area, has one of the highest concentrations of the synchronous fireflies. 
Out of those applicants, Davis says they only passed out 120 tickets. Some viewers, like David Hall, have entered themselves in the lottery for years. My family right there, they've been like talking about it for years and years. The viewing took place on gravel trails deep in the woods, where light from nearby towns couldn't reach. Before dusk, viewers were starting to wrap their flashlights in red cellophane to avoid disrupting the display. Here's Becky Nichols again. Uh, white light for sure will basically stop the display behavior. You can observe that if somebody turns on a bright white light when you're out there, all the flashing will stop. And it takes a few seconds for it to get back in sync again. How y'all doing? Good, do you know where you're headed? Each side of the gravel trail was taped off. Boone Van Zera, who's the chief ranger of the park, directing viewers to prime watching spots, says the display can last up to three hours. So um, folks describe it as being magical in a once-in-a-lifetime experience. At this time, it was around 9 o'clock at night. It was pitch black, aside from the red filtered lights. And then, all of a sudden, the sparsely covered forest floor spontaneously lit up like clockwork. <gasps> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. They're flickering. It's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. It's hauntingly beautiful. Now, the synchronous fireflies weren't the only firefly species out there. There was also the blue ghost, a rare species commonly found in southern Appalachia. The males emit an icy blue light and hover above the forest floor to find a mate. They can emit light as long as one minute at a time. They kind of look like small helicopters with spotlights. Oh, look at him. But you don't have to go to the Smokies to see this wonder. A number of parks in the East Coast offer this opportunity. Or better yet, you can see them and other firefly species in your own backyard. I got blessed by a firefly. <laughs> I just felt one hit my, my face. I'm Jackie Sieber, WUOT News. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Patrick Couch and Kay, Frank Hutchinson, Gene Ritchie, Hazel Dickens, Paul Loomis, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. <laughs>